0: My guest on today's show is Beezer Clarkson, the managing director at Sapphire Ventures, where she is responsible for the management of Sapphire's fund investments in early stage venture funds globally. Her career through direct and fund investing has left her with unusually deep knowledge and insights in this space. Our conversation starts with Beezer's meandering career and turns to her work at Sapphire, including its structure and unique relationship with SAP, Series A investing, winnowing through the massive funnel of fund opportunities, the due diligence process and re-underwriting process for next funds, implications of companies staying private longer, and hashtag OpenLP, a public forum to hear the voice of venture capital LPs that Beezer created with past podcast guest Chris Duvos. Please enjoy my conversation with Beezer Clarkson. Beezer, great to see you.
1: Great to be here, Ted.
0: Your career took certain stereotypical business paths And I'd love you to walk through those early stages and any advice you have along the way.
1: I honestly struggle with this question because it wasn't exactly linear to being an LP. To be fully candid, I didn't know what an LP was in college. I came out of college with a typical sort of sense of banker, lawyer, consultant, doctor. That was sort of the opportunity set in my mind coming out in 94, which was a while ago. But I always had a strong sense of what I thought was interesting. And I think if there was an arc to how I've built my career is following something that's a question in my head that I can't get out of, which is interesting, and I can be both professionally and personally interested in solving it. I certainly know some folks who have done a masterful job of doing a much more purposeful view of I'm good at X, and Y is the opportunity I can apply it to, and I'll drive down that path for 25 years, and they've had extraordinary careers, because that's a very powerful lane. I've taken, say, probably the word that I always think of is a bit more meandering, but my first job to give it some tangibility out of college was being an investment banker. I was a poli-sci, international liberal arts kind of person. I then picked a very quantitative job, which was project finance and leasing. So it doesn't sound like a logical jump, but I was doing pipelines and power plants and other projects internationally as well as sale lease backs of planes. But it was the intersection of what's going on in a macroeconomic environment, what is the specificity of this project that's going to add dollars, and then how do you think about the upstream and the downstream How do you bring in the World Bank and the IFC back in the days to help secure the money? Can you take it public? So it was all those interconnections that I thought was super fascinating and trying to put the pieces together to create a viable business project. Now, again, at 22, I did not articulate it that way. I just thought it's being perfectly (laughs) candid. I think kids these days are much more knowledgeable about the world. I just think I knew that when someone said this to me, I was like, oh, that lights me up. And I say this publicly, I dropped accounting in college. I thought I'd never use it didn't know a debit from a credit poor morgan stanley i was ill prepared they <laughs> took a chance and so i learned really hard on the job i mean it was really brutal and i think kids these days are much better prepared so hats off to them for having a bit more of their skill set aligned but you can also in some respects just follow your passion and i can happy to walk through any twists and turns but i ended up gelling into the lp world when i joined a investment firm that was managed by it was pierre midiar's money and midiar network back in 2006 And he was? The founder of eBay. And he had a – it's still alive. It's still doing its thing. It was called a media network. And I joined the investing team. You had to do nonprofit grants and direct tech investing and then indirect investing. And I became part of that team and did not know what an LP was. But one of the first investments I worked on was a fund – doing microfinance lending to different various other institutions, so essentially backing a fund of funds. And I was like, this is so cool. If you want a network effect, if you want leverage, if you want to bring together the ability to have maximum impact in industry, here's a way of getting $1 to work in multiple ways. And then I just kept following that passion in different ways, and it ended up at Sapphire. So
0: before we jump into that, the time that you spent there, you were doing some direct investing. And how long did you spend doing direct investing?
1: So I said my career was moved back and forth a bit. I started direct investing in 2000. So I had gone to business school a year after you. And I'd come out, and I was coming to New York. I thought at the time, actually, I wanted to be doing business development for a startup. I came to New York, and I met with a bunch of startups. And it was basically double-click and very, very early startups. And it didn't land. I didn't want to be a double-click. Some of the startups just didn't. It was very nascent. It wasn't the kind of opportunity that I was looking at. I'd been in the Bay Area and saw What was going to happen? And I thought, well, if I can't be part of the company, I'll be part of the funding source and help build new companies. So I joined a very early stage venture fund called Launch Center 39 that also had an incubator attached to it. I don't know if it was the first, but it was certainly one of the first, right? In the meatpacking district, which was then not the scene that it is today, got to do the BD work for the portfolio companies as well as direct tech investing. And that was unfortunately a short career because come 2001, The world went belly up in tech. And to their credit, back then, GPs gave the money back to LPs. I know, shocking, right? (laughs) Can you believe it? And so they did well by their LPs, and they gave the money back that wasn't invested. And they basically shut down the fund over time. And so I left, and I moved back to the Bay Area at that point. That's how I entered, ultimately, the direct investing. That was part of my tool set. And that's when, when I went to a mid network, it wasn't completely illogical that I moved into
0: that. We land on the LP side. Why don't you talk about what Sapphire is?
1: Sure. So Sapphire is a venture firm that does three different kinds of investing. And I'm going to focus on the LP work that we do. But we have two other funds on the platform. One does direct growth and one does the uh, sports tech e-media. And they're all three separate groups. We have three separate teams. We have three separate pools of capital. And I bring that up because the LP world now does a lot of direct investing. And some direct funds do LP investing. And We can talk about the form and the function of why we chose what we chose, but we had a very purposeful intent of keeping them
0: separate. Why don't you go right into that? Okay.
1: Well, Sapphire's Heritage started as the Direct Growth Fund came first. And so the entity itself was doing direct investing. And then my friend, who is Nino, who started the entity, called me because we'd known each other. We were Morgan Stanley analysts together, and we'd stayed in touch. And he said, I want to launch this LP product. And he said, you know GPs, you understand this world. Can you come in and help me? And so it was the opportunity to help build something brand new and really be on the ground floor and help not just think through. The capital had already been mostly figured out. So, was, But how do you structure it? We have a, somewhat of a fresh slate. What does it take to be a great LP? And you can make it, which is a super unusual opportunity. So we came up with a structure that's unusual. And we went out and studied the market and endowments and foundations have this incredible legacy of venture investing. And what were their attributes and We couldn't create a school or a foundation overnight, but you can say it's the permanence of capital, it's the durability, it's the long-term perspective are the characteristics. And so we can create that by being evergreen-esque. And then where is the stage that we think is is a great risk-return reward? And we said Series A. So we had the direct growth team doing their thing. And let's do an LP fund platform that comes in at the early stage. So it's synergistic, but not forced collaboration. So we invest in funds we look for great managers on the early stage, predominantly Series A exposure. Emerging or established, we are agnostic between the two. What makes a great manager is that they've invested in great companies. And if our direct growth fund is looking for great companies, there is a natural harmony. Our growth fund will do any deal that they think is great. But again, if we have great managers with great companies, there'll be a natural interest versus saying you can only shop out of one of each other's pools. And we just decided it was much better to keep it separate. We think our GPs are sensitive to making sure their information is separate. As an LP on the LP team, my whole team and my mandate is to make sure our GPs are successful and put that first and foremost, not anything else. And we felt by building the team that way, we would go to market in a way that was authentic and holistic and everyone can do what's best for them. But if you build it virtuously, then that will happen. To get
0: this permanence of capital, you have to have a certain type of capital behind you. So how did that all come together for Sapphire?
1: So when the growth fund was started, it came out of SAP, the large German-based global enterprise software company. And they had been doing direct investing some 25 years ago. And the team that originally launched out and they became the first Sapphire Growth Fund at the time called SAP Ventures, and then went on to rename themselves because they were independent. And to SAP's credit, they're a fantastic LP. They understood the importance of having an independent GP and being an LP. That's just their wisdom and their insight. And I can't say enough good things. And so when we came to them with the LP vehicle, it was a different conversation, but it was similar. It was like, this is a long-term game on the LP side, right? You're talking decades. And how do you then structure that in a way that they can play and they can feel that it's right by them financially, but we're also set up for a success. And so being able to create a recycling trigger is what we put in place. So as the capital comes in, we can recycle it back, which makes it a product which doesn't have a great name because it's not a fund of funds. A fund of funds, by definition, has multiple LPs and has a different fundraising dynamic, right? You go out and you raise every whatever it is, three years. Probably the same, but maybe slightly different pool of LPs. We raise fund of funds one. They can't then recycle into fund of two. So we sort of looked at some of those things and said, that's not going to work well for us. Let's do this. And having one source of capital becomes one of the important underlying creators of it.
0: And so the SAP is the only source of capital?
1: The LP team. On the growth fund, there are other... LPs now, and the sport fund has other LPs now. So I'm saying like, that's why the groups have that difference, because it's important. One of our philosophies as a platform, and very much so on the LP side, is that where you get your money from matters. You don't always have a choice. I understand in the market, it's always, it can be hard to fundraise. But if you have a choice, how do you choose and what do you do with that choice? And we believe very much in the responsibility when we're an LP in funds to show up and be strategic value, and that an LP can be as strategic and your importance as the direct investments are and so we always want to walk our talk and that's how we've approached it and that's why we've kept a single source of capital on the lp side because we believe that's what's best for the gps and so then people say why do you do what you do because that's what's in service of the gps and i think as an lp that is a very very important mantra
0: what does it mean to be in service of the gps as an lp
1: well the way we've interpreted it is to essentially to always be their advocate right you're there you're funding them We wanted them to be successful and to do our part. And that doesn't mean to say you get involved in the knitting. Obviously, it's called limited partner for a reason. But we also try to bring to bear more than capital to the table. When we launched this in 2012, we thought that was critical. And today it feels even more so, right, that money's table stakes, but there's plenty of it in the universe at large. (laughs) And there's different ways of structuring your capital. So for us, the evergreen structure was an important component to making the money different. Long-term capital is different from short-term capital. And then what else can we do? So we, on the Sapphire platform, have a large group that's called Portfolio Growth. And they have business development folks. They have marketing. They have talent and they do things that are value-add services to both our GPs and the portfolio companies writ large. This is a shared service across our platform. So in that way, we can say, what can we do that we can bring to bear and supercharge things? We look back at RLP and say, SAP is a global enterprise software company. That's amazing. And so part of what our portfolio growth group does is be the connection points. So when our GPs or portfolio companies come to us and say, we want to talk to SAP, we broker that. And we broker that by hosting innovation sessions and creating a curated dialogue. So it's not just a introduction into the masses and say, like, good luck, you know, call us later. It's a let's bring people together and let's curate it so that the CEOs, when they're talking to folks in the SAP universe – it's handheld, and so you want to make sure the conversation is going to be useful for both sides. SAP also has an amazing customer base. So part of what our portfolio group does is also reach into that network and has a very deep bench of CIOs that they know. And so a number of companies that come to the innovation sessions aren't just SAP because There might be questions that our portfolio has that's just not going to be answered there, right? Maybe it's Walmart or Coca-Cola or a bank or some other sort of infrastructure enterprise. And so they'll do innovation sessions for a whole range of entities. And that's all of that is what we want to do and bring. Same thing for talent. That's the hardest thing for every company, startups or otherwise. And so how do we use our talent experts to help bring a roster of board of director candidates. CMOs get rapidly turned over. When they do dinners amongst CMOs, so we know more folks and can help reach out. Again, all this idea is to being in service so that when people ask us for help, you can do that tactically. There's also things that I think LPs can do because we have a macro perspective on the market. We invest as an LP in funds in the US, Europe, and Israel. And you can see trends that pop up in different areas. And when you work with many managers and see even more that you don't work with just from interactions in life, you can bring that to bear. And so we do benchmarking and analytics. We're happy to talk best practices, things that we've seen historically. Those are all things that we think LPs can bring to the table that
0: we should, frankly. How many people are on your team to be able to kind of create this function of servicing?
1: Well, so the portfolio growth team is about 10 people. They don't do investments. They're all there just to do those other activities. On the dedicated LP team, it's five professionals, and that's dedicated to the investing side and the managing of the portfolio.
0: And it sounds a little bit like there are, say, Andreessen Horowitz has taken that service model to a whole other level in terms of volume. Is that edge that you're trying to bring then as much the connectivity to SAP and the resources of the company as it is the sort of broad servicing? The idea,
1: one of the wonderful worlds that we try to solve for is the many-to-many. Andreessen's done a phenomenal job, and they have a different structure for servicing that. My understanding is people can come to their executive briefing center and get a whole roster of folks to visit with in one day. That's not our model. Our model is much more the curated, and we'll do innovation sessions and say, what are the business challenges you're facing? And in listening to that, then think through what is the various portfolio companies. They'll be useful for them. In your
0: funds, this focus on Series A, how did you think about the risk-reward of that subsector of the venture ecosystem?
1: Well, we had the experience set on the growth side. They come in sort of post-product market fit when the tech has been a bit more de risked and it's more of expansion stage for a company. There's no need to replicate that. So what's a different part that's interesting? And Series A has been a durable portion of the sub-asset class that has strong returns. I mean, there's no guarantee just because you're investing in the Series A it's going to work out. But when you look at the risk-reward, as you said, it's a wonderful area to play. And we do some seed too, and even our Series A managers sometimes do seeds. So it's impossible, especially in this market today, to be just in one little narrow window. The world's pretty fluid, and sometimes it ends up being a little bit later, but it's still an early risk. So that's what we're really sorting for Usually at Series A, there's, the company themselves have been a little bit further along, so there's some de-risking, but there's still a whole bunch of opportunities set And what's it going to be. And people say product market can gel at seed, and that is absolutely true, but there's still a little bit more of the launching out of the gate, and there's still more pivots on the tech. Like, that's still a pretty fruitful stage.
0: When the growth fund had existed, how did you think about attacking the Series A through other funds and GPs compared to just sort of building your own Series A effort?
1: No, it's great because that was one of the first questions I want to give credit to the team that was there. I was not there during the time of that. But the thinking was, well, we could hire a whole new team and go out and do a bunch of early stage investing. And it's a 100% a viable path. And you see folks doing that. Their thinking aligned with my thinking, which was, well, you could do that or we could do a fun product. And then you get many more connections very rapidly. And one of the things from the LP perspective is early stage does have a ton of risk. That's why it comes with reward. If you can find an unrisky high reward scenario it's good on you, right? But doing it as a portfolio funds helps to mitigate some of the high highs and low lows. So you're unlikely to lose all your money, basically. I mean, there's, again, no guarantee, very important to say that, but the pooling of it does help on some of that. And so that was part of what resonated on it. And then for me as an opportunity, I know it's wildly different from project finance, but The same thinking of a network and how do you pull together and what's the upstream and the downstream and what are the different macro trends that are going on and how do you pick an opportunity to play in and then you have to let it run as an LP like, you know, you're in it for a 20 year ride.
0: So let's dive into the investment process you go through, which always starts with sort of where do you find these ideas from and how do you decide?
1: Well, the nice thing about venture is that there's both an ongoing on-ramp of new managers, but there's also an established set. So when you start, there's always a bit of where do we want to play? And for us, at Series A. Predominantly, like that's the predominant exposure you want in a fund, and there's different ways of getting it. And that automatically narrows the universe to a certain extent, right? So you cleave off a whole bunch. And then you look at it and you say, are there geographies? Are there different tech trends? Do you want to be hyper-specific? Do you want generalist? And you get a portfolio theory. And then you deploy it. And so one of the early decisions we made was, loosely speaking, we're about 70% U.S. and then about 20 to 25% Europe and the remainder in Israel. And we had that thinking from the outset as key technology hubs and went out and just looked for it. And there was obviously some managers that were already in, in market and you could look at their body of work. And then when you also open the doors and say we're open to new emerging managers, you get new
0: work. You have a huge funnel, you're able to narrow it down with some criteria of what you're looking for, and now you're in front of the people you wanna be in front of. Say even in your first and second meetings with some of these GPs, how are you distinguishing between the ones you'd like to invest with with the ones you don't?
1: Well, obviously track record is one more or less easy identifier, but that doesn't mean to say. And always the caveat is, past performance doesn't guarantee future. So one has to always rethink.
0: It also takes twenty years to get there, right? So it's hard to know.
1: Quite correct. <laughs> it is hard to know. There's a lot of noise, far less signal. So the lens that we've started using, and it was just a little bit of a catch-all phrase because it just you need a rubric in your head is why you. And we apply this to ourselves, which we already talked about. But why you? Why this manager? Why have they chosen to come together? Why are these the right people to go after this opportunity? And what is the opportunity they're going after? How do they articulate it? How do they think about it? It can be a whole range. And then why are they the ones the entrepreneurs are going to pick? Because there have been times in the past, and maybe times in the future, when capital is not as available. But certainly today there is a very competitive landscape. And so being able to be the choice of the entrepreneur, not just for a check, but the check that that GP wants for their portfolio construction is not a given. So understanding that is very important. And it's a simple statement, but you can unpack it in you know, so many different directions.
0: And let's go right there. So each of those why questions, what is your particular lens that you say, okay, that's the answer or one of the answers that we're looking for?
1: I don't think we go at it with a preset sort of here's what we're looking for. The only thing that we go in looking at it from an underwriting perspective is we look to underwrite Series A exposure to a 3x net, which means we want the funds to be able to produce that. And then we can get into portfolio construction and see the bar is higher because it's coming in earlier. So it's 5x. But short of that, how people solve for that, it is a wide range. And I think being open to the fact that it can look very different is important because people are always coming up with new ideas. And it's, again, trying to figure out if it's going to hit a 3x net. That actually is a really hard bar. So you can be very open to what could be, but then it also makes it very narrow in what will be.
0: When you put your organizational behavior hat on and walk through some of these, there's the, why are you here doing this? And what is it that you like to see in that key question?
1: Usually it's some sort of resonance between the investor and the the entrepreneurs or the type of investments they're looking to make. And it doesn't have to be a one-to-one ratio just because you know you were an operator in X space doesn't make you the greatest investor in that space. But there has to be some resonance. And it's hard to define before you see it. And I know it's squishy. That's part of what makes the magic happen to be perfectly honest. Cause sometimes you hear something on paper, like as an example, we don't do seed a lot. And when we did do seed, we were very reluctant to do single GP managers because we felt the individual risk was so high. Now we actually have a few single GP managers. And we feel very differently about that risk. And it kind of goes to the understanding of who they are and what they're doing and how do they run their business quite literally, which doesn't mean to say there's teams that run also beautifully, but we've opened up our aperture to that concept. And again, we don't do a lot. And I caveat this because every time I say one of these things publicly, you end up with a, but you said you do this. (laughs) But it's still more the exception than the rule. But then from a team dynamic, I mean, one of the things about venture that's so hard is that there's just so few external data points to look at and say, here's what makes for a great team. But you do look at how teams come together and how do they play a role? And this is why LPs ask about attribution because it's a very blunt instrument to try to understand how a team works. And there are some teams that are very collaborative and then attribution becomes somewhat team-based and you have to understand what role people play. And some people are great at sourcing and some people are great at the board seats. And if they can, as a team, do all that, power onto them. Other folks are much more individual contributors that come together on a shared platform and each run independently. And that is also very strong.
0: Do you tend to have a bias of one over the other of which works in those models?
1: No, because the data doesn't support just one. I think if there was just one, everybody would know it and do it.
0: What does the process look like in terms of how many touch points you'll have with a given manager before you make a decision?
1: It varies. In a perfect world, would have many. We don't live in a perfect world, so that's not always true. It's not uncommon for us to say we want to get to know people over a course of a fund, which is, I think, not atypical in the LP world. Sometimes it's multiple funds, depending on how early the firm is in their creation or if they're trying a new strategy. There's other times when you've watched people. I sort of call it watching the footprints in the sand, and you see them in market and you see them doing things so you can get to know them without them really knowing that you're knowing them. I mean, they might bump into you and you see them. And then when an opportunity arises to join the fund, you can move very, very quickly because you've essentially done your homework in advance. So it's hard. And it's when folks come to us and say, we haven't met. We have know X, Y, Z amount of our fund left. Would you be there in the next few months? And it's not impossible, but that's much, much harder because it is such a people-driven industry. And if you don't know the people and how they work together and how they play, coming up to speed that rapidly – is just a big challenge. It's not impossible, but it's just a bigger challenge. And I don't know if GPs are always quite as aware because it's a different dynamic in funding companies. And that's one of the places that differentiates. As a limited partner, I mean, it's not always a blind pool, but the majority of time it's a blind pool. And you're saying, here's money for the next 15 years. And that's just one fund cycle. And the other thing as an LP is that you invest with the belief that you'll be there for multiple funds, right? It's not a move in and move out. That's not how LPs build their portfolios. So it's not just 15 years, it could be 30 or 40, which again, even for the GP side, I think they would want to know somebody for more than two months before being married for 30 years. We can talk about whether or not that's even a healthy dynamic, right? (laughs) But it's sort of this bizarre aspect of venture, right, on both sides, right? LPs would like GPs to stay doing what they're doing. GPs want LPs to stay doing what they're doing. And yet everybody else is in the gig economy and moves around rapidly. Sort of an an intriguing difference in trends.
0: So when you're watching these footprints in the sand, so the work you're doing when you're not in front of the GPs, not in those meetings, what are you monitoring?
1: So one of the things is we just do venture. And so it allows us to put our nose in the dirt at a very significant level. So you see people on cap tables who's investing in companies when you are looking at one manager, who are they co-investing with, who's coming in before and after them. So you get to know names that way. We like to go out and walk around and get to know areas that we're investing in and you meet people in places purposefully, right? The idea is just sort of networking with a purpose. And so you can experience people in those ways. You can, of course, ask entrepreneurs when you're talking about one opportunity, you could always ask them, who else do you like? What's going on in the world at large? And you can hear things coming. It's a whole range. I wish there was just one question to ask about the universe and the answer would come, but I haven't discovered that to be true.
0: You started your career in spreadsheets project finance, hard asset projects, and now what you're talking about is so much more people-based and network. How do you split your time between trying to understand any of the math? So let's say the math is the size of an opportunity for a fund for the underlying companies and just meeting with people and ear to the ground what's going on.
1: Well, we have a pretty stable set of analyses that we run. I don't think this is a secret. Math is usually just math. The analyses that investors run are pretty standard. So just as a shout out to one of my colleagues, Thomas, he actually wrote a blog where we shared the data as in a spreadsheet, which is that we collect in it. What was your initial check? What was the ownership? What did you fall on And I mean, it sounds basic, but how do you calculate TVPI and these things? So you can just, if you have the information, that analysis takes some time, but it is what it is. The harder part is understanding the people. And why did they made decisions and what the opportunities were and how did they solve? Because life doesn't make things easier for GPs. You don't always get the allocation that you want. And then especially in today's market, how do you maintain your pro rata? Should you retain your pro rata? And that's a dialogue. I don't know any other way of doing it. And it, it goes to your question of spending time with GPs. There's this very delicate balance. I think LPs would like to spend a lot more time with GPs than is just realistically possible. Some funds have 10 LPs, some have 55. And if every LP showed up every day to say, hey, could I sit with you and walk through your every deal? And hey, can I join your deal meeting? I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, there's no capacity to do that. So you have to pick your times and spaces. One of the ways that we do it is just that we focus. And so being just in venture allows some capacity for that. We travel a lot, which has its own downsides. But it goes to the best way to be with people is to be with people going to annual meetings. We try to visit folks off-cycle, so not during their annual meetings. Conferences can be great. So sometimes if we're speaking at a conference, you can speak with your manager. I mean, just all the different touch points. Because again, it's very fluid and it's a very qualitative portion of it. In the same way, we want them to know us, but don't want to be intrusive, right? So we want them to think of us as being on their side and having their back. Their job is investing. So you got you to get out of the way and make sure that happens.
0: When you dive in on trying to figure out effectively the optimal number of touch points or the time you want to take of your GPs, where have you seen other LPs that you feel like they're just asking the wrong questions?
1: I have a lot of empathy. So when LPs cover multiple assets, you know, like from timber to private equity to publics to physical real estate to venture, understanding the nuances of the difference between AI and ML – We live it. And I got to tell you, if you gave me a pop quiz, mm, not entirely sure how I'd do, right? (laughs) I just think that's a big ask. And so I think they do their best. I mean, every fiduciary is trying to do good by whoever the capital source is. But I just think it's harder to always know some of those parameters. So I think sometimes GPs have expressed to us some frustration that folks don't understand the difference. And I just think at some level, like, what can be expected? And then on the flip side, how can GPs help facilitate that? I think it would be great if there was a standard data room, for example. And then could there be other pockets for education on certain things that folks didn't have to ask? We believe is we have an onus. If you give us the information, it's our job to read it. So a lot of times when GPs will give us very thorough FAQs or a pitch deck or whatever it is, and then they come in and they want to talk to it, we'll be like, no, no, that's cool. We want to ask you other questions that aren't in the deck because it's our job to read the deck. You shouldn't have to read it to me, which clearly isn't always the norm. Because, frankly, I think some people are taken aback. They're like, but I made it. I'm like, yeah, 100%. (laughs) But sometimes you don't always have the time to do the homework. Especially right now, it's incredibly busy. It becomes even harder. In terms of
0: volume of processing. I mean, the whole
1: venture market, companies are raising pretty rapidly, coming back. There's all a bunch of pitch book data and crunch-based data on that. And then the GPs get pulled along with that. And then the LPs get pulled along with that. And so I feel like we're all running up the up escalator. (laughs) And it's everyone gets pulled along. I don't know if everybody wants to be working 24 hours a day, but when one person starts and everybody gets in line.
0: So when that's happening, and maybe it's a finite period of time.
1: For the last 10 years. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, that's true. What do you worry that you're missing in the due diligence?
1: We always have more questions than we have answers, just because it's impossible, A, to ask every question, and then B, sometimes the answers are literally TBD. We have faith that somebody means what they say, But can they then go and get that allocation for their portfolio? You will not know until the entrepreneur says yes. And then will the entrepreneur be successful? Like, who knows? Crystal balls are unfortunately broken when it comes to all that. So there's usually lots of questions around that. Where will the tech funding landscape be? Are we in a land of profitability and margins? Are we still growth at any cost? What does that mean? And as an LP, like this is the limited and limited partners, zero. This is not part of the world that we can affect. You're just Appreciating it, most polite word I can use. <laughs> there's a lot of things you don't have enough time to do. Sometimes it's also just getting out and seeing the landscape. One of the challenges, it's hard. Our team really is upset about it. Like people will say, oh, there's something new happening here. And it might be somebody you know, but they're raising a new fund, they're looking at something different. How do you get smart on that opportunity set in the amount of time that you have? You know, blockchain, crypto, next generation of direct to consumer, like pick your area. Or somebody will say, you know, it's not just the Bay Area, New York, L.A., Boston. It's the rise of the rest. How do you get out there? We like to go and see, but how do you fit in one more trip? And that can just be a detriment. Like there's opportunities you will just by definition miss because there's not enough hours in the day. And one of the balancing acts LPs have to do is their existing portfolio versus inbound. Right now what we're experiencing, and we being the collective LP base, because I've been asking my colleagues and other entities, and it seems to be pretty everywhere is that as GPs come back, your first priority has to be your existing managers. And if that's taking time, how do you then create the necessary bandwidth to look at new things? And that's also a demand for do you have new capital? Do you have a teammate that has bandwidth? Do you add teammates? Do you add capital?
0: How have you tackled that?
1: One of the things that we do is that we're consistent every year with the amount of capital we commit. And it's about 100 to 125 million. We like to write checks that are, call it loosely, 10 to 15 million. So you can guesstimate our pacing based on that. And we don't have 100% religion. If it's a little less when you're a little more, totally fine. But if we preach portfolio construction and your fund size is your strategy, which is a Mike Maples from Floodgate Truism, but super smart, super true, then if we don't live that, then like bad on us. And it does mean there are times when you're like, okay, like we can't do endless amounts. If I want to do five funds in a given year, maybe we have to space it out a little bit. Much the same way GPs look at it, like what you do and what you don't do are important components of your strategy, so you you just have to deal. We have added to our team, like you try to add extra part of the portfolio growth, they don't do diligence, but they also engage with managers and they also see portfolio companies and how do you sort of be collectively smart.
0: And of that capital you're putting to work each year, what percentage of it does go to re-underwriting funds you've invested with in the past compared to new funds?
1: I don't have a hard and fast number, but I can tell you there's not been a year when we haven't added a net new manager to our platform. And that could be a new manager to the world or it could just be somebody that we're now working with for the first time. And that's also been something that we've been very – very focused on making sure it happens. If you look at some of the Kaufman studies and the Cambridge studies, the emerging managers play a very important role in the universe. So making sure we're open to that is important to us. Again, it's art. We wish it was more science in the world, but part of what makes early stage fantastic is the art. So if you take the art out, you're not going to get the glory either.
0: And do you naturally have almost a graduation where some of the successful GPs that you've backed or their funds that you've backed Grow past where they're going to be in your sweet spot of Series A and you just sort of let them go off.
1: That hasn't happened yet, but it's always possible. I mean, our experience to date is if you're an early stage investor, you've chosen that space because that's. I don't know if there's a 100% correlation between passion and work. I would love for that to be true. But there's usually some level of. And this is part of why I, as an N of One, just adore this space. It's because you talk to these GPs and it's just their eyes are on fire and it's the blue sky. And there's very different attributes to early stage investing to some of the later stages, which doesn't mean to say a phenomenal investor can't do both. And there's certainly folks out there that I'm sure can. But usually people gravitate to a certain area where they're strong. So the fund might get bigger. And then it's a question of portfolio construction and what does it take to return a a billion-dollar Series A vehicle. But that's different than does this manager still like their lane and sometimes we'll run numbers for our managers and come back and say, you know, historically, your power lane is this. And maybe today it's called Series B, not Series A or Seed or whatever. The nomenclature on the round is not the point. The point is you're really good at this intersection. And it's a backwards-looking historical function.
0: Limited data, too. Limited right? data,
1: But we're happy to do that with our managers and say, for what it's worth, here's where you've made the most money. And just we'll share that and choose what you do with it in the future.
0: As a manager comes back that's in your portfolio to raise their next fund and you're doing your work to figure out if you're going to re-up with this next fund, what happens when you don't?
1: Honestly, we have had the situation where some of our managers have gone separate ways. And so the fund themselves have stopped, which is a whole other dynamic in the venture world that I think it should be okay to be perfectly honest. I know the whole point of being an LP is to be in a fund for, you know, the next 100 years. But if someone's not wanting to do it in that format anymore, it's better for everybody that it changes.
0: To draw the parallel, what are divorce rates? I think they're way
1: higher than we statistically can capture. One of the research projects we've been dying to do, and we just need to find a separate research piece of work to do this, like actually time and bandwidth and a resource, is looking at how many funds graduate past fund date. I and my team have a strong sense that that between Fund 7 and Fund 8 is where a lot of funds go through succession. And people, if they've been there for that long, it becomes a natural chance of asking, like, do I want to keep doing this? If they've been productive, they have opportunities, maybe not. And do you have to work for 50 years? I mean – as a human, maybe no, right? you like to have other opportunities. And I also think it's where succession is incredibly hard in venture. And so things might also sort of break for some more unfortunate reasons. And we don't have the numbers to put against it, but I would bet that it's somewhere in that. There's obviously funds that we know that have been around for many years and have been very successful and have made it past that. And that means that they have somehow managed to bring on a whole new set of GPs that have also been successful.
0: All right. So one of the things that might cause you to not re-underwrite it is a change in the team. How about with the same team?
1: Sometimes folks decide to go after different opportunities and it's more of the underwriting of do we see the return potential for what we want to do? Because sometimes the later stages, it's not that we don't think it's productive and you can have a three to five X growth fund. Like we wish that for everybody. But a lot of times if you're going much later, The point of that is to de-risk it. And then theoretically, that should reduce some of the return cycles. So that just becomes not what we're looking for in our platform. For us to hit the returns that we're looking for, at Series A exposure. So it's really just things like that. Sometimes we haven't had this, but I could see a possibility people are going to push into another area of investing that might be a bit more tangential. One of the cool things about the abundance of capital right now is that people can really explore what counts as a venture-backable opportunity. But there could be things that just end up out of scope for us. One of the things that LPs also juggle is portfolio construction just as much. And what happens if you already have a fair bit of exposure in a certain area? Do you want more right now? You can hit that as well.
0: So a lot of those lenses are change. So we have change in the people involved, change in the opportunity set they're addressing, change in your portfolio that might cause that. Are there examples that you've experienced where You felt like you made a mistake. And so none of those levers have changed. It's the same team approaching the same opportunity set in the same size. You did the whole re-underwriting. It's three years later, maybe four, maybe it's two funds. But something doesn't feel right.
1: That's a bit harder. It would have to be pretty abrupt because the feedback loops are so long in venture. I would interpret making a mistake to being underperformance in a fund. Unfortunately, you don't know if you're right or wrong for another 15 years because there have been, right? I mean, this is this is like the weird thing. You're like, if things end spectacularly badly, then maybe everyone knows that maybe the partnership didn't work. But it's actually hard to know if the investments don't work until they all play out. And again, in, there could be other markets where the availability of capital is tougher. But like, for example, you should see like this is a prototypical fund return thing. 30% of your early stage company should not work. 30% will be mediocre and 30% will be awesome. I got to tell you, the member of seed companies, you you hear it coming in the Series A crunch. We look through, but you do not have the loss rates at seed that should fit that level. Over time, it should work out because life is long, but you're seeing so many companies and you can raise multiple follow-ons on seeds. You're just not seeing those loss rates. So it's very, very hard to know if the companies are just building slowly. I'm not totally dodging the question. It's just incredibly hard to know right now, and there's also – really different fundraising patterns in different kinds of companies. So if you're a SaaS company and you're hitting all your metrics, there's a lot of capital that seems to be interested in that area right now. But if you are an infrastructure enterprise company that's doing a bit more of a complicated product, you have to get to market, you have to do enterprise level sales, your metrics will produce differently. And it doesn't mean to say it won't take off and have some spectacular growth rounds, but we're not surprised if we see the number of follow-on rounds in those funds being slower. And then is that a mistake or is that just That's just the way it's going to produce, and then like you might be in the J-curve longer, but then you'll have some huge outcome on the other side, and you know in 10 years. I mean, the typical model when we started this in 2012 said most funds start being productive around year eight. I don't know if we look at the data today if that's going to be true, if it's not really year 10 or 11 because of these companies staying private longer. It's just extraordinarily hard to know.
0: Yeah. I want to turn a little bit about some of your thoughts about the venture landscape in general. This dynamic of companies staying private for longer. How does that sort of filter into your thinking about these opportunities?
1: You know, it's interesting. Capital is just getting very concentrated because you have companies staying private longer absorbing more capital. So therefore, you have GPs who are very busy with their companies. And what capacity does that leave them to do new deals? And again, you can hire more partners. You can raise bigger funds. But there's definitely a concentration challenge. And you hear it amongst entrepreneurs who come back and say, well, I haven't been able to raise my next round. I can't get people's attention. Like sheer getting into the room tension. Lawyers are super busy. LPs also have the same challenge then of concentration of their same managers are coming back and come back faster because the... Staying private longer usually presumes that they've raised larger rounds, which means reserves have gone up, which means more capital is getting sucked in. Liquidity is the grease that skids the wheels of the venture capital community. And if liquidity does not come back around, and this is not an LPGP concern, it's the employees. I mean, you you see a very strong dynamic. And I hear entrepreneurs talking all the time how they move companies partially because they need to put together a basket of options because the 401k world looks a little bit in question. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know if their companies are ever going to go public. They're staying private longer. So how do you diversify that risk? You join four or five unicorns, you collect your options. And I I worry a lot about that because if the entrepreneurs and the employees are not getting the rewards that they need to stay in the business, then this whole business stops. Like GPs and LPs can't make this business go. It is 100% the people making the companies go. I personally worry about these staying private longer, what that means for those people. And is it going to work out okay?
0: How can it change in the sense that it does feel like there's significant, if not excess demand, all through the ecosystem for the top venture funds all the way through to what you're doing and then into the company level?
1: Well, I guess the obvious simple answer is, could companies build differently to go public earlier than they are today? And what does that mean? And I think the sort of mantra of growth at any cost would make it difficult because the public market obviously seems to have certain things that they're willing to take risks on, certain things that they're not. And so you might build a bit differently getting ready to go public than companies have been building in the past. If you asked me this question a year ago, there were some of the seed managers and potentially in the A round that were selling into some of these huge rounds. Maybe not their whole stake, but if you could 1x your fund on 25% of your ownership of a company, taking a little risk off the table – was a nice thing that people were doing. I don't know going forward where that's going to be. We're in new, new territory, right?
0: (laughs) One of the things that's come up recently, particularly with WeWork and all the news around WeWork, is the lack of proper corporate governance. And then you filter that down to the venture capitalists, you'd think, are the ones serving on the boards who are informing that. What have you seen in the management of venture capital firms as businesses?
1: Well, so painful secret if people don't know this. So LPs don't see the management company docs. The document that gets shared between the LPs and the GPs is the LPA. So if you ask to see the management company documents, I would be surprised on the GP that will share it because it is their document. There is no legal obligation to share. When governance lives in those documents, as an LP, you don't read it the hand literature. It's a dialogue between the GPs and the LPs about how they manage the firm. And then you obviously also don't see the term sheets with the entrepreneur's and that's a dialogue. Some of the governance issues are obviously covered in those documents, and some of them are softer. So it lives in the conversation and how people manage and what risks they're willing to take and how systemic do they think some of these are. Some of them maybe we could have seen coming. Some of them you don't always know how it's going to play out. Dual structure stock had some implications. But I also appreciate that many GPs will tell us if you don't play ball at a certain level, you don't play at all. And that's a really hard balancing act. And are you willing to walk away from these opportunities because they don't feel right? And you're right, but you're wrong because you haven't been able to make any investments. Not to excuse bad behavior, but I think there are some real interpersonal and interbusiness dynamics that have to be looked at. And as a venture capitalist, you're buying a minority stake, which also just fundamentally limits some of the abilities that you have.
0: You know, one of the things we haven't touched on yet, but I think it's super important to talk about is your efforts with OpenLP. So why don't you discuss what that is and how it sort of flowed through all of this kind of network development and transparency you've been involved with for so long?
1: So I'm going to give a shout out to one of your past participants, Chris mm-hmm. So So he and I have been friends for a number of years. Back when he was at TIF and I was at DFJ, we were friends. And when I left and was at Sapphire, we used to hang out and we were chatting. And we were like having a little LP, jibber-jabber, as he says. And he was blogging already, so he had a foot in that door. And we were talking about people that do this and who are out there and who are on Twitter and he was giving me some advice. And we realized we had the same request where GPs, and now entrepreneurs, but back then it was mostly GPs, would say, well, what are LPs thinking? It just wasn't rocket science. You just looked out and you're like, well, we keep saying the same five names who are out there. If you study venture and you say, oh, well, blogging became super important and then tweeting and then podcasting, the LP voice isn't there. Okay, you just like lined up the dots and you're like, we see exactly where it is. Total props to Chris. He was like, we should have a hashtag. And because we had a team at Sapphire, we had the portfolio growth team, we have some experts in marketing, and we were like, okay, we can take on the responsibility of helping to launch this because it does take like arms and legs and legwork. The important part was the mission. because that was also part of the ground rules, which was this has to be a safe forum because the point is to aggregate and to pull in and to welcome new voices. And that's just not going to happen if it feels scary or difficult because You can see the push and the pull on the internet. And so we're also RIA at Sapphire, a registered investment advisor. So we understand the rules of the road for folks and LPs that are. So when we built our website, we were like, listen, it'll be RIA compliant. So we did it. And we launched because of other LPs that came to the table. And we reached out and said, if you have content, let us know. The whole point is to amplify. And so we've just been doing that. It's anything that sort of looks at the venture industry we think, sort of fills the need of how do you provide a 360 view. And that's really the point of it. And it's become a bit of a mission for us, if I can say that, because it's a, our way of giving back. And I say that collectively amongst the LPs. But we at Sapphire have definitely put dedicated time and attention into it because we think it makes for a healthier, better industry. And that's good for everybody. And again, this is part of our being in service as an LP. We have the ability to do it. So you should
0: do it. What's the type of content on OpenLP?
1: Oh, well, for example, Lisa Edgar from Top Tier was on a Harry Stebbings podcast. So, like, we'll put that on there. Or somebody writes an article that sort of, I don't know, looks at whatever trends. Sometimes it's lovely things like reserves. How do you do it? Portfolio construction or what's going on in this industry versus other. Some GPs write really wonderful sort of like Red Point put out an article a little while ago about the state of the industry and anything like that. It's a, The point is to be open. If someone tweets OpenLP, then like they're tweeting it and it's just good on them. But we don't tend to sort for content that's like why I did a specific direct deal. Now, folks like Foundry talk about why they invest in different funds. And so like that's interesting. And sometimes it's a commentary on the seed market. And so again, the point is just to help be educational. So if it fits those parameters, more is better.
0: So where can people find it? OpenLP.com.
1: And now you can submit your own article. We have a submit button go figure. I know, advancements in technology.
0: (laughs) As on Twitter as well as at hashtag OpenLP on Twitter. Anytime I sit down with anyone in the venture ecosystem, I always reference the old Michael Lewis book. And I always want to ask, what's the new, new thing? So what is on the cusp of what ventures, funding that we might not have heard about?
1: Oh, I was going to say profitability. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, no, I mean, so I'm in New York this week. and I've been meeting with a bunch of folks. And actually, listening to the number of managers, like GPs now talk about revenue and that happening, and the folks at Series A looking to see more revenue metrics, it actually feels, I know it's a bit of a like return to an old new thing, but it's a bit of a new new thing. We see a whole range in our portfolio, right? Because we have, in our underlying portfolio, we We're conscious of the value of consumer and enterprise and some of the new industries with frontier tech. So we see a broad range. Even industries, say fintech, which has been around for generations, there's always something new and interesting. And so it's hard to say ML being applied to drones. I mean, there's isolated incidences. But the reality is you never know what's happening until it happens. And as an LP, frankly, you mostly hear about it either in the quarterly report or the annual meeting. So sometimes I feel like the GPs know what they're sorting for, and they'll come and say, we're looking for new mobile consumer platforms. You're like, great, we all need more of those. But can I tell you that it's landed? When you see 15 of them in your portfolio, you know that it's landed.
0: All right. Before we turn to closing questions, I want to apply this premortem analysis that Gary Klein introduced a little while back and ask you this question. So we are now sitting here. It is five years from now and venture capital is in everyone's stockhouse. It's happened. Why do you think that happened?
1: Because it was a down cycle and people lost money. Is this the obvious answer? I'm going to start with the obvious, and then we'll get more, more insightful. But what
0: creates a down cycle?
1: Well, sometimes you can see down cycles... Like 2000, 2001 was a rough, and then 2002 and 2003 were rough in the venture tech land. Not necessarily for everybody else. So you can have a asset class specific down cycle that is not part of everything, right? In 2009, 2010, with the credit crunch, also, obviously, it hit everybody, right? That was a national macro global issue. So venture got sucked into it, but rebounded really fast. So it could be any one of those, I don't think we would be here at Sapphire if we didn't fundamentally believe this, that tech will continue to produce interesting, game-changing technologies. And all those trends are still there, right? When you look at the number of companies that still have an incredibly interesting path forward, which is code for a long way to go on the digitization and software and what can happen in a cloud and what can happen for us as individual consumers. No, the road is really, really long. And that's the exciting part. Will there be a stock market dip that then produces less returns five years from now? Maybe. But – This is part of why all the different reasons why early stage is a fun place to play. Five years is kind of a blip. I mean, the companies that are getting invested in today, maybe they'll exit in five years, but that's an anomaly. I mean, really, they're in it for eight to 12.
0: All right, Beezer, here we go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: Okay, I'm at the point in my life where that's actually a really hard question to answer. (laughs) partially because my son is at a great age. He's 11. Like He's actually doing a lot of fun things. So right now our hobbies are intersecting a bit. But I would say one of the things that I used to do a lot of and did less than the last 10 years of his life and it's coming back around is more scuba diving, things like that, which if I could spend a whole bunch of time doing a lot of underwater aquatic activities, I would waste a ton of time doing it.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: I actually asked my team and friends about this because I wasn't sure what other people saw. And they said that We work really hard to make curated introductions. So the flip side of that is that it's very hard to digest when people make the presumptive intro. People call it the blind intro. But it's hard because being out in the market, having people know you, is wonderful. And we're obviously purposely doing that. But then it becomes very tricky when people reach out and say, oh, I know you do X. Will you please help Y? And it's in your inbox. And Y might actually be wildly out of scope. Like it might not be an area we invest in. It might not be... Access I can help with might physically be a don't have time. And then without the ask in advance, like it puts everybody in this really awkward spot.
0: All right. How about your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: We stress a lot internally about looking at the numbers on portfolio construction, which doesn't mean to say it's the panacea, but I think it's something we appreciate when the GPs at least come in and can talk to.
0: (laughs) That, their own like, understanding, their own of understanding, their own structure which own I appreciate. Portfolio. And this
1: is also part of why open LP and all these things. There's no class about like life learning, right? On the ground job training. What is portfolio construction? Is it just the checks and the ownership? Is it time diversity? Is it reserves? Like these are hard, hard, hard things. But if you're coming in and talking to an LP, like doing a little homework on that is really helpful because otherwise it becomes this bit of an awkward question because you're like, well, how is it going to return? And if you're getting a blank stare, you're like, oh, okay, we're going to do this real time, but. My guidance is that's not the highest and best use of the room. Same thing with the competitor landscape. So coming in and saying there are no competitors, there might be very corner cases where that's still true, but it's tricky. And so that it just is guidance to GPs. That doesn't usually resonate super well.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you use social media? Oh, we talked about OpenLP. We talked LP. about it.
1: So open LP. so I'm on Twitter, and we – Post the blogs that we write as a team, like Sapphire Wide, on our websites. You can find them all there.
0: Do you use it for due diligence?
1: Oh, interesting question. I do try to. I definitely try to follow people if they're out there. I would say Twitter is definitely – there's plenty of people that are on it, but there's a whole bunch of people that aren't. I don't know if Facebook and Instagram are fair places to do diligence on people since it becomes so personal. I feel like that should be a bit of a safe space. Some people use it very mindfully, and that's great. But I say a lot of it, people are just sharing pictures of their kids, and like that should be off the record. I heard a GP say this about their entrepreneur. I thought it was fascinating. I know TikTok's under some pressure right now, so maybe it's not the platform that would be in the past. But they said one of their companies couldn't get sort of the level of awareness on Twitter that they thought they would. And they went on TikTok, and it just blew up in a good way. Like, all of a sudden, the company got a lot more business deals and all these things. And I was like, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I know video. I've seen some short-form video coming up on LinkedIn, which is super interesting, people making their own videos, people creating their own content and sort of self-publishing and finding different ways to self-publish. But we're digesters of it. I mean, honestly, I feel like I could spend all day on social media reading and not do anything else, and you have to balance that time.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: So... Both my parents were immigrants. My mom's family came through Ellis Island and had a bit of a tough go of it as new entrants. And my father's family fled World War II and Nazi persecution. So one of the things I've learned from looking at both their families' trajectories is the importance and power of resilience and self-reliance. And that doesn't mean to say you can do it all by yourself 100%. I believe in the world of getting help from others. And it's been a hugely instrumental part of my life. But just like looking at what they did and their families did kind of teaches you that you can And you got to show up and do it. And then also part of the reaching back and the helping others, because if you can get your foot in the door, like, it's not easy. Those were, like, really hard, tough times. And how do you bring people with you?
0: All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Oh, probably not to sweat the small stuff. I mean, I know it's like everybody says it, but the older you get, the more you're like, oh, I cannot believe I worried about that in the past. And that most people spend a lot less time thinking about you than you think they do. Like All those wisdoms are 100% true. And this is a tough one to balance with. It goes to your comment about family and friends is the, as you get older, you realize also just how hard it is to spend time with friends that are outside of work. But the importance, because people's lives really move and people have tragedies and you're like, oh, if only on that trip I'd take an extra 10 minutes. And so right now I'm trying to juggle more of that too. And it, I don't have an easy answer. I just call it work-life integration. And. And it's great to be able to hang out with you and do this now as an example.
0: This is so much fun. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Well, Well, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.